Did you notice that last hymn that we wrote was written in 1680? Isn't that amazing? You think about that. This man who penned those lyrics, little did he know that four centuries later, people in a distant land that didn't really even exist at the time that he sat down and honored and glorified our Lord by writing these lyrics that a people in a different age, in a different place, would be singing them. I don't know about you, but I see hope in that. When I feel that what we are doing at times feels like it's not enough. And I do feel that, brothers and sisters, and perhaps you do too, occasionally. I, don't, I won't say I feel like that all the time. But it's things like this, I think, that God gives us these things that once upon a time I would call clues. There's evidence. There's evidence of God's providence, his continual providence. And I want you to see that today in the words that we're going to read and things I'm going to be talking about to battle against the negativity that can so easily overcome us and overshadow everything else. So today we continue on with our sermon series in the book of Judges. It's been a while since I've been before you speaking uh, from this book. So we're going to dive back into it. And today we're going to be concentrating on Judges chapter 8, starting about verse 33, and we're going to work our way through Judges chapter 9, verse 21, and the title of this sermon is A Deadly Conspiracy. A Deadly Conspiracy. Now, in this day and age, conspiracies have kind of gotten a bad rap. I mean, when someone says a conspiracy, they're generally um, being dismissive of something, right? Like, conspiracies don't really exist. Well, I believe in conspiracy theories. I do, because once upon a time, I even arrested people for conspiracy. Conspiracy is a crime. And when I made an arrest for conspiracy, although they didn't happen very often because it is a difficult crime to prove, and one that happens almost all the time, but is hard to uncover, when a conspiracy case is made, then a theory must be presented to the district attorney as to what the conspiracy is. Now, let me give you an example. Say, you and I are working together. We're partners. We're investigators assigned to major crimes. And one of our informants tells us that uh, First City Bank is going to be robbed tomorrow afternoon by some certain guys. And we get enough information where we surveil these robbers, potential robbers. We surveil them as they drive into the parking lot of the bank. They park their car. Well, we don't want an armed robbery to take place because people can get hurt in an armed robbery. We know that this crime supposedly is going to uh, take place. So, dressed in our best undercover garb, not looking like police officers, we walk up on the car and what do we see? We see two men in there with ski masks on their laps, a toy gun, and one of them is writing a note. We arrest them. What do we arrest them for? 
They haven't really committed a crime yet, have they? But they have. They've entered into a conspiracy to commit robbery. And conspiracy merely means that two or more people have gotten together and they're cooking up a scheme to commit a crime, a felony. That's a conspiracy. It's a chargeable offense in every state of our union, and people get arrested for that, and people get sent to prison for conspiracy. So conspiracies are real. We shouldn't be dismissing, dismissive of them, especially since we're going to find a conspiracy in God's word. God does not tell us fables in his word unless they're clearly identified as such. Now, this idea of conspiracies is, like I said, is the plotting and initial stages of a nefarious act by a group. It's got to be more than one person. So when we talk about groups, when we're in a group, if we know the group and it's, a, it's one we've been in for a while, we feel comfortable, don't we? We feel safe amongst those that we perceive to be like us. You know, our guard comes down. We know the people within our group, whatever that group may be, our neighborhood, our place of work, a club we belong to, our church, our nation, as a matter of fact. And we expect threats to come from outside of the group, don't we? People, no matter where they are from, whatever their culture, they are leery of the outsider. That just seems to be the way sinful humanity is. Because we do face threats. We need to be realistic about that. The outsider, sometimes sociologists will term this as the other, the fear of the other. Nations build strong defenses to protect from attacks from the outside. But we can be vulnerable from attacks from within. And that's one of the elements that we find now arising in the time of the judges in Israel is threats from within. Now remember, with Gideon and the previous judges we've looked at, the threats have been external enemies, haven't they? They've been been those who have come from other lands to conquer and to uh, pillage and to inflict violence. An illustration of this idea of the threat from within not being recognized, we find in the English idiom, the fifth column. Now, this term comes from the 1930s in the Spanish Civil War. And at the time, the city of Madrid was under attack. There were four columns of soldiers marching on Madrid to take the city. So the defenders of the city, the military, were prepared to defend against these four columns. However, there were people inside of Madrid, a column hidden that rose up unexpectedly from within, where where it was not expected. This was the fifth column that attacked uh, Madrid. 
And so we get this term, the fifth column. The fifth column is something that's unexpected. It's people within that are a threat. When we're attacked from within, we're surprised by it. We're shocked. And it demoralizes us greatly. Because then we begin to think, well, who is really on our side? If anyone in my group could be prepared to undo the group. Now, there's, there's, this is a different element than the, than the type of person that we have within groups. <clears throat> I've dealt with this type of person a lot in my former career when I was uh, a command officer and a chief, and we labeled them organizational terrorists. They were those that enjoyed upsetting the apple cart within the organization, but we knew who the organizational terrorists were. We could prepare for them. They were ones who took pride, I would say sinful human pride, in bucking authority constantly. We knew how to deal with them. We, we knew who they were. This is completely different from the fifth columnist who appears to be a very loyal person and appears to have the same aims as the group. Now, throughout ancient Israel's history, we see that internal enemies actually cause more harm than foreign enemies. This is a pattern that arises, and we shouldn't pick just on Israel, but that's our focus because... You know, we're a church, we're talking about God's word, and this is God's people. Um, but throughout history, we can see the, the havoc wrought by internal enemies. But we're going to deal with this idea of the internal enemy in this section of Judges. And I want to start uh, back in Judges chapter 8 to move into chapter 9, so we kind of set the stage since we haven't talked about Judges for a while. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Judges chapter 8, and I'm going to start at verse 28. I'm going to read 28 through 32 to begin. So, starting verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the day of Gideon. Just a little aside here. As I pronounce some of these names and some of these terms, if it begins with a J, I may use a Y. Ancient Hebrew had no J sound in it. So um, if that happens, that's what's going on. And don't think that, you know, I'm, I'm lost my mind or I don't, or I don't know how to read. Uh, I just try to pronounce it in the way the, the, the Hebrew language um, uh, is pronounced like uh, ye rubal, ye rubal. There's no J sound, so that's how we would properly pronounce that name. But so ye rubal, the son of Yoash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seven sons. Now remember, ye rubal and Gideon are the same person. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Avimelech. 
And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abirzites. So what we're seeing here, we see this name, Yerubal, son of Joash, and it's mixed. There's a mixing that's going on here that is hard for us to pick up, I think, because um, when we first meet Gideon back in chapter 6, he's called Gideon, son of Joash. And then later in chapter 6, he's called Yerubal, or in Hebrew it means let Baal contend against him. But the merging of these two names is going on now, um, these two titles, if you will. And it's a subtle reminder, I would say, of the very mixed character that we're seeing in Gideon. Um, This double perspective in Gideon shows us his mixed legacy, partly good, partly bad. Well, that's really a human being, isn't it? Um, But the the mixed legacy that he left to Israel. And in verse 29, this is is, what we're looking at here is a transitional paragraph. But in verse 29, there's a pun in Hebrew that's going on with the Hebrew term that we translate as house or bayet. Because back in verse 27, remember... Gideon took these things from the kings of the Midianites, and he made something. And our Bible calls it an ephod. Remember, they worshipped the ephod and became a snare. Well, back in when that is being explained to us, when the ephod became a snare, it was a snare to Gideon and his bayat, his household. And now he goes and lives in his own bayat, or house. So it's kind of like the the pun is along the lines of, well, he made his bed, now he has to lay in it. Like, he caused all of this. Because now he and his offspring face the consequences of this blasphemy that he committed. This, This making of this object of worship was a rebellious, an evil thing. It was an abomination in actuality. But on face value, the statement of him going to his own house, what it implies to us is that he retired into private life in keeping with his earlier protests. I hope you, you remember this, but, um, but earlier the, the men of Israel offered kingship to Gideon. And what did he do? No, I won't be your king. Neither will my son be your king, for Yahweh alone is your king. Great words, right? Paradoxically, however, Gideon didn't live that out. He said that, but he didn't act like that. His household looks far more like a ruler's household than your average Israelite's house. It seems that his retirement to his own house was more symbolic than real. He had many wives. Now, there's a warning in Deuteronomy about rulers taking many wives. Do not do this. And from these many wives, he sired 70 sons. That's a lot of boys to have running around. We know what havoc one boy, two boys can cause. If you've got more than two boys, my hat's off to you. Well, you got your work cut out for you. But we love our boys. Anyway, the interesting thing about these 70 sons is I believe that 
I truly believe there were 70 sons, but it's also symbolic of something, isn't it? And it's interesting. We look at the other examples of men who have 70 sons, and they're not good examples. There's something, I think, that we're being told about this. The minor judge, Abaddon, we'll get to him later in Judges, he had 70 sons. And the wicked king, Ahab, had 70 sons. Ahab, who was being run around by his wife, Jezebel, who really seemed to be the power, had 70 sons. Gideon also had a concubine, right? Not just wives, he just didn't have a wife or wives. He also had a concubine at Shechem, who bore him a son named Avimelech. Here, we need to see the pointed distinction between the 70 sons and the one son, Avimelech. It's being separated in the text for us to, to see, to make note of. This is a seed out of which grows much sin, including the sin of fratricide, the murdering of brothers. It's just like the apostasy of the ephod that Gideon created when he placed the ephod in his own city. The planting of the seed of fratricide is by Gideon's own making. And interestingly, he names his son Avimelech. The man who said, I will not be your king, nor will my son be your king, gives his son a name which means, my father is king. Words and actions, brothers and sisters, words and actions. Does the one who truly rejects being made king give his son such a name? It's almost like a wink-wink, isn't it? (laughs) I'm not going to be your king. My son's not going to be your king, but I really am the king, because look what I named my son. This is an ironic comment between the contradiction, I would say, between Gideon's words and his actions, which brings me to the first point I want to make with you. Point number one is the legacy we leave to the next generation is spoken most loudly in actions rather than in words. And we know, if we're old enough, that the next generation is always watching its parents' generation. And you of the younger generation, when you have a next generation under you, you'll experience the same thing, I guarantee it. But when we proclaim Christ by mouth, but live as pagans live, we bear false witness of Christ, and we become hypocrites. Hypocrites bring shame upon the church and are used by Satan to turn others from the gospel. How many non-believers have you talked to that use examples, poor examples of people that profess Christianity as why they could never be a Christian? why they would never go to church, why they would never read the Bible because of so-and-so they've seen on TV or so-and-so that you may happen to know in common who portrays a lifestyle other than that of a Christian lifestyle. And when we consistently direct focus on ourselves rather than on Christ, 
we make ourselves the standard of Christianity to those outside the church. And of course, we inevitably fall short of Christ daily, hourly, minute by minute. And when we do this, when we make ourselves the center of the Christian life, we become objects of scorn and derision of unbelievers. I've seen this happen. I'm sure you've seen it happen too. At work is usually the place where it's most obvious. There'll be someone who's very vocal of their faith, but they don't portray the lifestyle or the work habits or the morality that one would hope is associated with the name of Christ. And the non-believers, they watch and they see it and they make mention of it. Oh, that's what a Christian is, huh? Doesn't seem to be any different than the way I am, but I don't go around preaching at people. I don't go around acting like I'm better than people. You know what I'm saying? We've, we, we've all experienced this. this is, we, we are bearing the name of Christ as Christians. We must, we must realize that. We must treat that you know, with a great deal of caution and a great deal of regard. Because we, if, if we are truly God's elect people, we've experienced a transformative effect of the gospel of Christ as applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We are different people. If we're acting just the same as when we were pagans, then... Beloved, I must caution such people that they need to re-examine their Christian walk and their faith. Far be it from me to judge another, but the word of the Lord is clear in this matter, and we must take it seriously. We must take our own behavior very seriously. And when this transformation takes place, we should experience a new aversion to sinful inclinations, the things that trapped us before, the things that were snares to us, like the ephod was the snare to Gideon and his household. Those things should make us turn away in revulsion. And as new Christians, it may take a while. Sanctification is not quick. My, my process of sanctification, I think, was very, very slow. Um, and even still, you know, I'm working on it. We all are until the Lord calls us home or the, or the Lord returns. So if you're being worked on right now, as I, as I hope and pray you are, in sanctification, don't despair, brothers and sisters, if it seems to be happening slowly, if you're still struggling. This is something the Lord takes us through for his own good reason. But Gideon here, when he's offered kingship, he boldly and correctly told the men of Israel in 823, like I said, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But he behaved otherwise and gave one of his sons a name that proclaimed that he, Gideon, was actually king. And Gideon's hypocrisy doesn't end with him. It plants a deadly seed for his family and for all of Israel. It just doesn't affect this one household. It affects everyone. Such are the ramifications of sin in our life. They're far-reaching. Going on in Judges, we're going to read now 
verses 33 through 35 in chapter 8. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, God's word is correct. Gideon did do good, did he not? He rescued, he delivered Israel from the Midianites, the Midianites who were preying upon the land and the people annually. As sure as the crops would be planted, the Midianites would ride in and take everything. This was a good thing that Gideon had done. The Lord raised him up for this. Despite his many flaws, which we should take comfort in, that flawed people are used time and time again by God. And but the interesting thing here, as flawed as Gideon was, he was a restrainer. He acted as a restrainer upon Israel. We see this in the text where it says, as soon as he died, all restraint was cast to the wind, and the nation rushed headlong into apostasy. So Gideon, in some regard, was holding back Israel from going full-blown pagan. But as soon as he was dead, as soon as he was dead, as soon as the word got out, ba-boom, boy, paganism, here we come. And the narrator notes three dimensions to their evil in this, in this text. First, the Israelites played the harlot with the Baals, meaning they committed themselves specifically to Baal Barit, which means the Lord of the Covenant. Now, this is something that's especially distasteful because they're connecting Baal, the Canaanite storm god, with the covenant. And there's only one god of the covenant, and that is Yahweh. Yahweh alone is a covenant maker. They're mixing. There's a syncretic syncretic, uh, mixing of religions going on here. We're going to bring in this good Canaanite stuff and mix it with this covenant Because the covenant brings us blessings, but we want the pagan stuff too. And the spiritual idolatry that's going on, and and notice how how when, when people stray from the one true God to other gods with a little g, that it's couched in the term of an unfaithful spouse, that it is adultery. That means we are betrothed to one God. We are the bride of Christ. We cannot entertain any other lovers. And God's word makes it very clear that the spiritual connection between human beings and, and what they worship is like a love affair. Even if that person rejects the God of the Bible. That person is in such a relationship with something. This is connected, this idea of the the Baal Barit is connected with what we'll see later in chapter 9. We're not going to cover all of chapter 9 today, but there's spiritual adultery that continues, it goes on with 
El Barit, or God of the Covenant. We have Lord of the Covenant, and we have God of the Covenant. Now, El, E-L, that is the name of the supreme God of the Canaanite um, uh, pantheon of gods. They didn't just have one god. And El was the husband of Asherah. You remember the Asherah poles, things of that nature. They were, they were some sort of pagan worship uh, device, maybe out of wood, maybe a tree. So El was the husband of this. Asherah was his consort. And he was the father of 70 offspring. Now isn't that interesting? 70 offspring. And one of the sons is of El in Asherah is Baal. Now Baal, called Baal. Baal is not really a proper name per se. It means Lord or Master. Secondly, in what, in what we find here in the narrative, Israel says Israel did not remember the Lord their God in verse 34. They did not remember the one who had rescued them from all their enemies on every side. This doesn't mean they suffered amnesia. They certainly remembered the Midianites coming and terrorizing them and how they were rescued from it. What it means is that they, they failed to take into account Yahweh's past saving acts on their behalf they, and that they exited the relationship with him to remember in a biblical sense, is relationship, like knowing is. And they failed to respond in accordance with God's gracious salvation of them. And we'll see this as we go through chapter 9. Israel gets worse. They eventually exhibit no knowledge of or allegiance to Yahweh whatsoever. And we ask ourselves... When we read this, when we see all that God has done for them, how could they just abandon God? How do people abandon God? Well, I think we find the answer in our doctrines of grace, don't we? That that's our natural inclination to run from God unless God acts in a transformative way upon us and changes our hearts. The third thing we see here is they acted treacherously towards Gideon, Yarubal, and his household. The man who had saved them, they turned against him. Had they treasured Gideon and his work, they would have dealt loyally with Gideon's family. We're going to see they do not deal loyally with Gideon's family. They deal treacherously and murderously. We see an emphasis on Israel's ingratitude throughout this closing episode of Gideon's judgeship and his legacy, what happens after him. And though the Bible forbids us, quite correctly, to deify God's students, excuse me, servants, which we, we, we absolutely cannot, there is only one God we worship, just like at the 10 a.m. hour when we were talking about the difference between your average, if there's such a thing as an average angel and an angel of Yahweh, we are to esteem the servants of God, though. Scripture is very clear on that. It teaches us to esteem them highly. 
And it's easy enough to criticize those in authority. Criticism comes very easily to us human beings in our fallen state, especially when one does not bear the responsibility of authority. It's easy to criticize the one in authority, like the organizational terrorists that I talk about. So we find it easier and maybe even more enjoyable to criticize people rather than expressing gratitude to those who labor to lead us in the grace and wisdom of the Lord. That includes pastors, that includes parents, that includes teachers, our mentors, our friends, all of those who wish to be positive influences on us, all of those who teach us what God would have us know and how to live. And this criticism is often made in the mistaken belief that critical insights are helpful. And they can be. But we must use wisdom, beloved, in how we criticize others in God's house. The best illustration I can think of is that many years ago, as a police officer, by department policy, I was, I was mandated to go see the department psychologist. Anytime we were involved in certain incidents, we had to see the psychologist because they knew the cops wouldn't go see a psychologist on our own. So they forced us to go. If you were involved in, 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 in some really bad stuff, you had to go talk to the psychologist. Well, at the time, the psychologist we had was a really good guy. He came, he was a military psychologist. He dealt with... Um, PTSD in the military, and then he, he decided he was going to uh, go to work uh, in the field of law enforcement because the harvest was plentiful in law enforcement when it came to PTSD, and not very many people were working in it. So we're talking about this incident that I had been in, and then he diverts from that eventually. He starts talking about all this other stuff that I did, which I didn't understand. Why do I have to talk about this other stuff? I don't want to talk about this other stuff. This other stuff is really painful. It hurts. They're bad memories. I don't tell anyone about this stuff. And then he said to me, you know, Ken, I'm going to say one thing to you that probably no one has said. Thank you. Thank you for what you did in that horrible situation you just told me about. I was stunned. No one had ever thanked me. At this point in law enforcement, we really didn't even give medals or commendations. The brasses thought, you know, their, their, their principle was, we're paying these guys to do this stuff. The paycheck is thanks. We don't need to give them anything else. But we were highly, highly criticized by everybody. And I saw the effects it had on idealistic people coming into law enforcement that came in that wanted to make a difference, that were coming in for the best things, the best reasons, the best motivations, and all they faced was criticism. There was no thanks. There was no recognition of the difficult things that they had gone through. And it embittered them, and it turned them hard, and it made them withdraw into themselves, and it fostered an us-versus-them mentality. And any time a government official spoke during those years, it was to criticize the police. Whatever problems were going on, the police somehow were also responsible for it. 
Suddenly all this happened, oh, excuse me, all this changed when 9-11 happened. And people started thanking us for doing our job. And that was a good thing. It, it, was, it was a good thing to be appreciated. Criticism, relentless criticism, is destructive. And we need to appreciate those who labor for us. And when we ignore the instruments of God's grace, we demean the giver of that grace. When God gives us people in authority in the church and we criticize them, we are criticizing what God has done. We are criticizing God's actions and we need to understand that. And in the text, what we find here is apostasy from Yahweh, rejection of God, and ingratitude towards his leader that he put in power go together. Now that's not surprising if we think about it, is it? The rejection of God and ingratitude are linked. And overall, in the story of Gideon, we've seen four major truths, I would say, so far in his judgeship. First, if anything positive happens in the lives of the people of God... It is by God's grace and not on account of merit. And God used Gideon to bring about this grace. And in Gideon's work, we can see that with God on the side of the Israelites and on our side, no enemy is invincible. The victory is sure. Think about what happened in this account so far. 300 men with Gideon were able to defeat 135,000 Midianite warriors. And they defeated them without using conventional military weapons. This attests to the power of God in this. Indeed, I think, you know, as we go through the Bible, we see that God deliberately, often selects ridiculous means to achieve his ends. Why is that? It's to teach us something. It's to get our attention. That we need to learn that God's kingdom is built not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God, as the prophet Zechariah wrote. Thirdly, we see the greatest obstacle to the work of God amongst his people and in the world at large is the faithlessness of his people. Not the faithlessness of the world. The world is faithless. We we know that. We, we, We must accept that. It is God's people and their lack of faith that becomes the obstacle. We see this in the account of Gideon's fleece. This was not about discovering the will of God when Gideon put the Lord to the test with this fleece. Gideon's actions should not be taken as how we are to discover the will of God by putting the Lord God Almighty to the test. No. Rather, what was going on with that is a stubborn resistance to what one knows clearly to be God's will. The angel of the Lord came to him and told him. How much clearer can it be? 
It's like reading it plainly in a book that God had set before us. I don't know God's will. (laughs) It's right here, brothers. There's God's will. Read it and discover it. Meditate upon it. Pray upon it. Discuss it with your family, with your friends, with your brothers and sisters. God was in no way obligated to respond to Gideon's audacity of putting him to the test. But our God is gracious, is he not? And the things he does in the face of our stubborn resistance is a sign of how much he loves his people. Yeah, what Gideon did was wrong, but the Lord didn't chastise him. The Lord revealed his will to him. Fourthly, those who are called to leadership in the kingdom of God face constant temptation to exchange the divine agenda for personal ambition. Now, I'm not talking about the secular world. I'm talking about God's visible church on earth. And sadly, we do see this, don't we? We must guard against it. We must guard against our personal ambition driving us. Gideon began to act as though it was he who achieved with the sword of Gideon, this rescue of Israel, rather than the sword of the Lord rescuing Gideon. Thy kingdom come was replaced with my kingdom come. Gideon became focused on establishing his kingdom, not the Lord's kingdom. And unfortunately, that old adage, we've all heard this, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, often holds true even within the church. And this is a pit that any one of us can fall into. We must be aware. Now, we're going to get into Judges chapter 9. At least the first five verses here we'll, we'll cover. Judges 9, 1 through 5. Now, Avimelech, the son of Yerubal, went to Sikam to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Yerubal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Avimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barit, with which Avimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Yerubal, 70 men on one stone. But Yatam, the youngest son of Yerubal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all came together and all met at Bit Melo, and they went and made Avimelech king by the oak of the pillar as Shechem. Now this place that gets mentioned over and over, Shechem, is of huge importance, huge symbolic importance. It was here that Abraham had first built an altar to Yahweh after arriving in Canaan. We read this in the book of Genesis. 
Here too, Joshua had called together all the tribes for a great covenant renewal ceremony at the completion of his campaigns of conquest in the book of Joshua. Now Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh, but Shechem was a city of Ephraim, two tribes that were in competition with each other. Now it's kind of strange, we can speculate as to why Gideon had taken a concubine here in a city that belonged to a rival tribe. There's a lot of political ramifications, a lot of power plays that we could see going on there. But let's leave it at this, it was unusual. What he did was unusual. But whatever the reason, it caused trouble. It caused big trouble. That's what we need to to see. And these leaders of Shechem, we read about, that literally, they are the Baalim. They are the Lords. Same word as the Canaanite God, just pluralized. And it's here at the outset, it suggests that Avimelech will be associated with Baal in one way or another through the whole course of his disastrous kingship. The man whose father declared he would not be king, but his name, my father, is king, is conspiring with others to become this thing which he is not supposed to be, the king of the land. He's winning influence through this conspiracy over the rulers of Shechem by using his family ties. You might all kind of think of like a mafia thing going on almost. And his message to them is that a power struggle is underway and they're going to have to choose between him and the other sons of Yerubal. That's the 70 of chapter 8, verse 30. And he puts the same argument before his relatives on his mother's side. And he adds a zinger to them. Remember, I am your bone and your flesh. We could take that with like, remember, I'm part of, you're part of the family, I'm part of the family, I'll take care of you. Or, how dare you turn against, you know, one of your own flesh and blood. He is announcing to them, he alone is their blood relative. And in this, in this statement, in his actions, we see the, the, the diminishment of the power of, of um, Yahweh, as, as recognized by the Israelites and the covenant that they have with Yahweh. This cohesive power, they're letting it just go by the wayside. And there's a rise of tribalism here, one tribe against another, which is going to mount throughout the book of Judges. It's going to have far-reaching consequences. In verses 4 through 5, the rulers of Shechem immediately put their money where their mouth is by giving Avimelech 70 shekels of silver to finance his bid for power. And the source of the money comes from the temple of Baal Berit. The pagan worship is associated with this usurpation of, of power. This indicates their participation in the apostasy that's going on. The Baalim of Shechem are in league with the god Baal. And the number of shekels, or 70, it equals the number of Avimelech's half-brothers. There's a shekel for each brother. That points to us the value that's placed upon a human life by Avimelech and the lords of Shechem. The value of a human life is one piece of silver. So he hires worthless and reckless men, 
with this money who follow him to his father's house at Ophrah, where he murders all 70 of his half-brothers, we're told, on one stone. So there's some things we can draw from that odd statement, is that these 70 are killed one by one. It's not that they're set upon quickly and there's a horrendous bloodletting and all 70 are massacred. No, they're overpowered and they're taken one by one and placed on a stone and murdered. What does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like human sacrifice? That's pagan worship going on there. The man who would be king over Israel is sacrificing 70 of his half-brothers to demon entities. That's what the text is telling us. This brings us to our third point. A society that turns from the one true God turns itself over to the demonic. If we reject God and say we don't believe in God, there's something that we're going to believe in. We may not recognize what it is, but brothers and sisters, that thing that is believed upon, unknowingly at times, comes from the demonic realm. We see this, shockingly, in our own time. It was last week. A bill was introduced in the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And it passed. Thank the Lord. It passed. 220 votes for, 210 votes against it. So it squeaked by. This act that ensured that any child who somehow, by some miraculous event, survived an abortion, and that happens very rarely, but it does happen. We've all probably heard the testimony of those who worked in such clinics of babies actually surviving and then being left to die because they certainly didn't want to rescue them. This act ensured that any baby that survived this attempted murder must be taken to a hospital and given life-sustaining treatment. Is that not the only thing that should be done? There should be no other recourse. But 210 members of Congress voted against that. And I heard one congressman stand up. I listened to what he said, and I was flabbergasted that he was voting against it because voting for this meant that babies would be in danger. Don't ask me to explain that, because that is purely demonic. I do not want to delve into factionalism. If I talk about politics, I stay away from factionalism which is Democrat versus Republican. But brethren, we must know that every one of these people who voted against saving babies was from the Democratic Party. It is the platform of their party to kill babies. Christians who support such a party must seriously rethink what they are doing and realize what they're doing and what they are supporting. The murder of babies might as well be on one stone dedicated to Baal. 
This is not a minor league sin we're talking about. This is, as a seminary professor posted on social media, this is temple of Baal-like paganism that our government is involved in. Our government, our representatives, those that represent us in Washington. We pray that our nation change. We pray that God change the hearts of these people. Because God's word is very clear about judgment upon lands that reject him and turn to the demonic. Judgment comes. I pray that these people fall upon the cross of Christ in repentance. Israel's apostasy to demon worship brought God's judgment, severe judgment upon the land. And modern nations are not exempt from that judgment. This is not just fables in an old book that it happened then and won't happen now. Even though these words are probably meaningless to those outside the church, we inside the church need to take heed of this. We must not be smug in our own self-righteousness and shrug off the wickedness that permeates every part of our society at this point in our history. We must speak out against this. We must do the things that God will allow us to do. We do not act beyond God's will. We do not do things that are condemned by God, but we act in a godly manner, just like the prophet Elijah did against Ahab and against Jezebel when they raised up the prophets of Baal and made Baal worship the official religion of Israel. And as a result, Elijah had to hide from the murderous Jezebel. And when Ahab saw him, Ahab said, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Well, God let us be troublers of Israel if we can turn our nation from this evil paganism. So we see in verse 6 the installation of Avelimech as king. It's like a rerun of the offer of kingship to his father Gideon. But there's a striking and significant differences. The Israelites had made the offer to Gideon. But what we're seeing here is that it's the lords of Shechem who are offering it. They have become, in effect, they have taken over Israel. It's kind of like... you know, there's an elite that's going to run the place and forget everybody else. Gideon was offered kingship by the men of Israel because he had, in their estimation, saved Israel. But his son, Avimelech, is acclaimed because he killed his brothers. That's the great thing he did. He's a murderer. Killed them on one stone. What Gideon had saved, Avimelech destroys. Gideon refuses the offer of kingship. Avimelech solicits kingship and enters into a conspiracy, a criminal conspiracy of murder to obtain this kingship. And what happens in Shechem is a tragic perversion of the stipulation that is given in the Deuteronomic law in Deuteronomy 17.15 regarding the choice of a king once the promised land is settled. Yahweh told Israel, that 
They may have a king like other nations, but it will be chosen, the king will be chosen by him, by Yahweh. And this king must be from among your brothers. Avimelech twisted that. He was from among the brothers, and he was made king because he killed the brothers, or so he thought. Thought he killed them all. And they made him king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. There's there's a great blasphemy that's going on here. And an ancient Hebrew who's reading this or hears a story would be, they did what? At the oak of the pillar of Shechem? That oak and the stone there were, were set up to commemorate Yahweh appearing to Abram with the promises of the covenant. This is a holy site. Jacob buried his family idols there in fulfillment of his vow to Yahweh. It's a holy site. Joshua erected a stone here with a portion of Yahweh's word on it. It was a holy site. In Hebrew, it's called Mekdash, or a sanctuary of the Lord God. And this abomination takes place upon it. A key detail from the description of the mass slaughter of Avimelech's half-brothers comes to play. And I think I'm going to have to end there. I've, I've gone a bit over because I've, I've been preaching to you. <laughs> we'll pick up next week at uh, verse 17 in chapter 9. There's some very important things there. And I don't want to try and cram them into a couple of minutes. I'd rather just stop and pick up next week. So I, I, I beg your forbearance in that, and I don't want to detain us any longer. And, and let's start afresh, shall we? So with that, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. Father, we give thanks for the message that you give us. We give thanks for your steadfast love, your hasad to us, Father. We know we're undeserving of that, but we are thankful. We are exceedingly thankful, Lord. And we return that loyalty back to you, Father. And we just pray, pray that the Holy Spirit help us to return that loyalty to you in obedience and in faithfulness and in in love. Father, we love you, we love the Son, we love the Spirit. Father, help us to love one another in the same way, just as you have loved all of the brothers and sisters. Father, bless the rest of this day. Keep us safe as we depart from here. Bring us back safely at 5 p.m. Father, that we may hear the word preached again. Bless Pastor Steve as he preaches this evening. And I pray for your beloved, and the week that they will have, Lord, that they be safe, that we keep you in our focus, that our focus be on the cross of Christ, that we be grateful for every blessing you've given us, and that we be steadfast witnesses to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.